0: come back i haven't ever been there you know come (laughs) back (laughs) i would have to say this is my first coming out you know
1: (laughs) hi i'm andrew goldstein and this is the art angle podcast from ArtNet news where the art world meets the real world bringing each week's biggest story down to earth this month as the world limps its way towards spring and hopefully a gradual return to normality The Brooklyn Museum has opened a show called Lorraine O'Grady Both Slash And that provides valuable fodder for thought in the year ahead. As the title suggests, it's a career retrospective of the venerated performance and experimental artist Lorraine O'Grady, who for more than 40 years has created poetic, hard-to-classify works that probe questions of inclusion and identity in a way that has had a deep-orienting impact on a whole rising generation— Admirers are quick to point also to the power of her writing, perhaps particularly Olympia's Maid, her classic 1992 essay considering the flattening of black female sexuality in art history. It so happens that Ben Davis, our chief art critic, has been one of these admirers for a long time, and recently he sat down with the artist in the run-up to a retrospective to discuss her career, how her upbringing in Boston's Caribbean-American community shaped her art, And what it was like to go viral when the Biden administration paid homage to a work in a post-election ad. They also talked about much more. Here's the conversation.
2: What do you think forms your artistic subjectivity? Like When you think about where you come from, uh, what do you think is the important thing for people to
0: know? First of all, I felt completely invisible in the culture as a whole and it wasn't just that i felt i was personally invisible but i felt that everybody in my family everybody that i knew was invisible and so one of the things that i was thinking about doing in the beginning was just to try to make the invisible visible you know and it's really been sort of like i would say in the past 10, 15, 20 years or so that I began to really focus on caste as the reason for the invisibility and the reason at its simplest level I was feeling that I was invisible not just to white people but to black people and that this invisibility, the purpose of this invisibility was the very purpose of segregation in itself which was to prevent the entry of black people into the middle class, that the entire purpose of segregation, that the middle class is a threat, and that every time the middle class appears, it has to be made invisible at some level or another. So that, for instance, we have a great deal of the financial middle class in terms of the sports and entertainment industry, But we don't have, still even now, the sort of like everyday lawyer, doctor sort of middle class. And of course, that's what is the real sector. (laughs) And so why, you know, why? And I'm speaking about at two levels. First, there was the, when I was a kid growing up, realizing that all of the people that I knew were extremely accomplished, extremely well-educated. This is in Boston? In Boston, yeah. So at a certain point, I began showing pictures of my sister's 16th birthday party to show well, how that was celebrated in long gowns and suits for the girls and suits for the boys and so forth. And then looking at that picture, you could just see how totally invisible everybody's accomplishments were. I mean, one of my sister's girlfriends, her older brother, was not the first even, but the second black Solicitor General of the United States. This is in 1939, okay? He didn't become Solicitor General in 39, but he was Solicitor General by, I guess, the 1950s. And even in my own family, I mean, my sister helped uh, set up the first school social work system in the country. Mm-hmm. There would be no record of that, any of her accomplishments. Her husband went to UPenn uh, Dental School when he was 17, <laughs> Okay. He was 17 and he graduated from dental school at UPenn at 21. Okay. This is just the family. My cousins were one of the supervisors, the six supervisors of the DC school system. You know, she had a whole area of pedagogy that was under her control. And these people just did not exist. So that it was possible for people to think somehow that when the Obamas were elected, and they saw them for the first time that these were the first black middle class people that had ever existed in the face of the earth.
1: Right.
0: it was so distorted and it was personally hurtful, you know and it was pretty hard not to notice that wherever I went, I was the only black person you know and then when I went entered the art world, it felt even more distorted because everything in the art world is a little bit more exaggerated than anywhere else, as we probably know and so The idea that there could be Black artists making interesting work was not something that ever actually occurred to anyone. Mm -hmm. It just didn't, because it was an impossibility to imagine. So that was from the white side. (laughs) Then from the Black side, there was this other thing that went on, which was that I felt that many of the artists that I saw were... Collaborating were in complicity with their own invisibility by pretending somehow to be street kids, to be seeking credibility from the street.
2: Hmm.
0: What middle class does that, <laughs> you know? What middle class feels the need to do that? It's not that middle class people feel necessarily superior, but they have to feel that they exist in their own terms. Do you understand? that they don't have to exist in these other terms that don't apply to them. Not only, you know, having to pretend that they have this credibility, but they also are having to pretend that they can speak for this working class because this working class is not speaking for itself. It is because there really is no desire for anything other than that which has to be spoken for.
2: Right. You mean desire in terms of like art consumers, what they're looking for is... A Black artist that represents like what they perceive to be the Black condition, which is just this distorted view of things.
0: So what I'm talking about is a people whose complexity has been totally effaced, totally reduced.
2: And this is simply not truthful. It's not the truth. Do you have a particular creative method that you use? What's the thread that you follow in making art?
0: Well, I do respond to the outside world as well as to my inner promptings you know what I'm saying so like I am somebody who doesn't just make work without an audience I'm a performer and so I need an audience to be in dialogue with and once that dialogue starts, then this spigot is on, idea after idea after idea. Then when nobody pays attention, they can dry up a little bit, you
2: know? So I want to get to your first big performance, but I did want to ask you about your life between your childhood in Boston and up until the 70s when you enter the art world, you lived between a bunch of different things. They were very natural and organic progressions in some ways. I didn't just
0: become an artist in my mid-40s. I had been trying to become an artist since my mid-20s. Not a visual artist, but a literary artist. I had gone to the Iowa Writers Workshop in my late 20s, early 30s. I had been sort of like running toward myself, you know? and not not finding myself or not being able to express myself or to express the things at the level that I wanted to because I just didn't have the chops and the various other things were standing in the way.
2: Yeah, you talk about moving or feeling like between things and you move between all these different worlds.
0: I did, but they were all worlds that I felt comfortable in. That's the advantage of having to fit in everywhere.
2: I mean, you worked for the government, you worked as a translator. You volunteered for Jesse Jackson. You worked as a rock and roll critic for the Village Voice. I mean, you really just took in a lot of different colors for your palette to paint with later. You know, it was like all these different experiences.
0: Well, everything I did, I did well. That's all I can say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm sure that most people who listen to rock music have things they want to say about it. But I was just able
2: to say whatever I wanted to say. Did you learn anything from that like experience, say, as a rock and roll critic for the Village Voice that inspired you artistically?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I have a very long footnote in the essay in my book on the Allman Brothers Band that I learned a lot about something that matters to me, which was hybridity. In fact, that was where I really learned about it. In fact, the Allman Brothers were a white Southern band, basically, but they had black musicians, which was unheard of at the time. And then at that same time that I was working as a rock critic, there was Aretha Franklin. In fact, I met Aretha in Chicago, and she was just coming back from a recording session at Muscle Shells, And so... Most people don't realize that the signature recognizable period of her work, you know, Respect and I Feel Like a Natural Woman and all of those songs, were recorded at Muscle Shoals, which was owned by a white producer and had all the white local magicians. And most of the songs were written by whites. Interesting. She loved working there because they were very, very, very talented. They were the backup band of the studio, but they felt that at the moment they were recording, they were that singer's backup band. They were her band. They could make themselves into whatever was needed by the singer. That's how accomplished they were. So there were two different streams of Southern music, which always appealed to me more than Northern Soul. I was not a big fan of of Motown. I was a big fan of Stax Records. There were these two strands, these white strands, that were going black, and these <laughs> these black strands that were going
2: white. You know. So, so really, it's the crossing. It's the crossing of yes, these. Yes, exactly.
0: Things. Some of the best rhythm and blues singers from the South, people like um, Joe Simon and others, they were as good at straight country music as they were at R and B. So it was a very interesting world for me to inhabit at that moment. And I made a connection with this sort of like street Buddhism that the Allman Brothers were into, some of them, and uh, with the Japanese novelist
2: Murasaki Shikibu. That was the mid-70s, late 70s? Early 70s. Early 70s.
1: And then that does
2: seem to connect to sort of, yeah, when you enter the art world, As I understand it, it was around this gallery called Just Above Midtown, a black art space. What drew you to that space? Well, what drew me to the space was black
0: people. (laughs) I had gone to this Afro-American abstraction show at PS1. I'd gone to the opening. This was the days when they used to advertise openings in the Village Voice, you know? Yeah, yeah. right. And I found myself really, for the first time, surrounded by people that I hadn't realized existed as, in, as large numbers as that. This was a whole opening filled with Black people who were all beautiful, smart, artistically dressed, it is a fantastic atmosphere, that opening, and I really wanted to be part of it. So I knew that just above Midtown was where I could hook up with them, and so I just sort of appeared there, and I kind of did the usual kind of bourgeois thing. I volunteered. <laughs> I said, I can lick stamps. I can do any, I can, you know, stuff envelopes. I'll do anything you, ask, you need me to do. And then, you know, after about three weeks, I realized I could write the stuff that was in the envelopes, and I started actually working there,
2: you know. I mean, they really lucked out because they they've got they've got like a, a rock and roll critic uh, stuffing the press releases in the <laughs> for the art gallery. Yeah, so
0: they had a new space on Franklin Street, and I was trying to get people to come to the opening show. So I made a phone call to the New Yorker, and the woman who answered the phone she actually answered the phone, and so I was talking about the show and how great I thought it was going to be. And I said it's called Outlaw Aesthetics, and she said, "Oh, they always like to put titles on their shows, and there, don't they?" And I went cold when I heard her say that. You know, it's true. At that time, most shows would be called by the artist's names and then paintings, or the artist's name and sculptures, or whatever. Linda Good Bryant was very creative and she, you know, put titles on the shows. And of course, which way did that one go? Everybody puts a title on their show right now. But then it seemed something to, you know, look down on as unsophisticated in some way. And that was just very typical to me of the kind of lack of responsiveness to what should have been responded to. I mean, when you think about the artists that were there... You know, there was me, <laughs> you know, there was David Hammons, there was Sengin and there was Maren Hassinger. There were all of these people that were really superb artists. But they knew that they were not going to get shown. At a certain point, they sort of made their peace with that and decided that basically the real, the real audience that they cared about was each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so they made work for each other, really.
2: One of your most famous works of art is this performance character that you adopted, the Mademoiselle Bourgeoisie Noire, that almost was like an intervention into that just above Midtown art scene. Yes. I mean, how did you come up with the idea and how did people react? Well, I had liked the opening
0: act of Afro Ab- American Abstraction, but I hadn't liked the work so much. It felt very uh, tame in comparison to what abstract art I thought could do. And I was teaching at SVA, and one day I was walking back home across Union Square Park. I just had this vision of myself just covered in white gloves. And I said, oh, that's what that was all about. That worked with what art with white gloves on. And so I made this piece to critique that. I never do anything that's only about one thing. And so it was also a critique of bourgeoisness. It never occurred to me that I would put on a gown and a cape made of 180 pairs of white gloves, beat myself with a whip, and some people would think I was glorified in the black middle class.
2: Right, right. And I think some people do have that impression, and I think that's because they flatten out the idea of a black art scene as, like, these people all are somehow the same, and they don't think exactly. about the debates exactly. within that space. Exactly,
0: exactly. The complexity is completely flattened, made non-existent, really. So... At that point, I really felt, well, the situation is serious. You know what I mean? It's not just that they are making us invisible. We're sort of making our own selves invisible in a way, our own roots, our own uh, attributes, and so forth. It's interesting because you've talked about Jean-Michel Basquiat and that piece that I wrote about. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorite ones that I really connected to him behind all of this. Now, there's another situation, you know, people actually believe this ridiculous myth about him being locked up in the basement of, Nina know, gallery, do you understand? I mean, as if he were some primitive, almost just out of the jungle person, you know, whereas there could not have been anyone who was more bourgeois than he. Right. The ability to perceive reality on the part of those outside the group was nil, I have to say that one thing I really respected Jean Michel for a lot was that he never played that game. He never played the game of being a street kid, even though he had lived on the streets. What he was was not a street child. After all he'd gone to St. Anne's, right, you know.
2: He was going to the Brooklyn Museum when he was a he was a kid. Yeah, right. So he wasn't
0: from the streets. He maybe have been able to live on the streets, but what he was was a black bourgeois bohemian. Just sort of an invisible right. category, I think. So in other words, he was like, you know, somebody into jazz. It was had all of the black bourgeois bohemian traits. Even if he took drugs, he was taking it from that point of view.
2: You have this big show, but then you also have this new collection of your writing that's just come out, The Writing in Space. I thought, because you are one of my favorite art writers, that I, I did wanted to ask you about that essay from 1993. It's called A Day at the Races. And it's about your encounter with Basquiat and your impressions of him and what his story meant. You talk about, you know, identifying with him as a Caribbean American with a, of a certain background. And also, yeah. there's this line from it that I always think of, particularly now, when there's just all this overheated speculation in artists of color. You say, I knew the art world was about to eat Basquiat up, and before it did, I hoped to connect him to Black artists who picked up in the 60s and then dropped, could give him perspective on its moors in a way that his graffiti fans could not. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. What lessons you take away from his story and lessons you've picked up yourself that are relevant to artists today trying to navigate this very... Well,
0: I think we do have another situation. I mean, he was alone, really. At that time, you have to say, because he hadn't hooked up with other people like himself. But it would be very hard, I think, now for something like that to happen because there is a very large population now of black artists, all of whom are highly educated and so forth. You know, they've all gone to art school, got their MFAs and whatnot. I don't think that comparing his situation to the situation today would be... Fair to either side, he was left alone that he could think of the bohemian self destruction as a sort of glamorous way to go. Whereas I don't think that you would find that very much among black artists now.
2: There's not much of a bohemia now, as far as I can tell. It's a very professional world.
0: I don't think that you would find very many black artists who would think that taking heroin was cool. I don't think so now. Too much knowledge now that has gone past that. Well, let me ask you something, Ben. You're out there in the world. Do you still see caste operating? What do you mean? Racism? At the simplest political level, what caste does is it makes thinking about the white proletariat in romantic terms, like they're going to save anything, (laughs) as just romantic, okay? Because the way task functions for class in that sense is that the most backward white person from, you know, the hills of Appalachia can feel that they are better than any black person, including President Obama. And in fact, you know, the people who stormed the Capitol were filled with people like that. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. That was what Cast does for them, you know, and it's not ridiculous because, in fact, whiteness, as Adrian Piper used to point out, has a monetary value. So the question is, how does that mindset apply to the art world? I am not sure. Nothing is simple, nothing is straightforward, nothing has just one answer to it. For me, the question is, have black artists, even the most successful of them, been able to cross over into that place where white art students want to be them. Right. That's the question I have. Are are they still safely bracketed and separate, no matter how successful they get? What do you think?
2: Well, like you say, I think that's a, that's a complicated question and I'm still trying to figure it out. I mean, but I think that there's a very a strange moment really just right now in the last couple years where there's this yeah tremendous hunger for black artists you know and that's a really good thing and is really long overdue Th- there's all these uh, pitfalls and dynamics yeah I-, I don't think it totally escapes the dilemmas of caste that you that you're talking about i mean i think that it's a complex phenomenon i think that there's yeah. a lot of intersecting currents and in there like there's very cynical interest in this there's very sincere interest in representation and there are People trying to navigate that in all kinds of different ways. I, I'm really interested in the in the complexity of it uh, personally.
0: You know, I'm not sure that I know the exact answer. Do you know what I mean? Or exactly which way I would say that it's being shaped at the moment. Maybe we are making breakthroughs, but maybe we're just sort of making breakthroughs that allow people to pat themselves on the back. There's a difference between self congratulatoryness in relationship to what's happening and wanting to emulate what's happening, you know.
2: You have been a really important writer of talking about the invisibility of Black female subjectivity, for instance, and I think, you know, your essay, Olympia's Made, is very, very influential. Even in that essay and in a lot of your other essays, you bring in class and class differences amongst different Black artists, for instance, and where you're coming from in this really interesting way that, to me, adds an important dimension to some of these conversations it what sense? Well, you're asking me, have are we past cast in the art world? One of the ways I see it not getting past it is that I think when a museum is asked to have more representation, that they really are just looking for a, a black artist. And that means that they end up looking to the names they know best. And so the successful people did a lot of shows. And there is also this huge layer of, you know, unseen people who don't have connections that get into the art world. And unless you kind of bring in, you know, there are people with different positions in relationship to economic privilege, just educational privilege and stuff, then you end up kind of replicating, even as you're bringing people in, you end up kind of like replicating a kind of division between people. I don't know if that makes any sense to you.
0: Yeah. There's a universe out there. There's a whole universe. There's a whole world of human life, including my own human life, that I feel the need to understand for myself. I don't feel the need to constantly explain myself to them. I need to explain it to me, all of it, and sex and love and hate and all of the rest of it, you know? Race is something that feels more and more like a real effort to explore. One does it out of a sense of responsibility, but not out of a sense of need, because one already feels one understands as much as one is ever going to understand or as much as one needs to understand, you know. I'm trying to get to the point where I can engage in as much self-exploration as possible without having to... Foreclose my options as an artist in order to wage battles that are already clear. I think the dilemmas are not mine, the dilemmas are someone else's. The dilemmas are white people's and that there wasn't need to start solving it yet. Do you know what I mean? That I don't feel like I have the desire to solve those problems for anybody else. I mean, I've lived with them and I understand them probably as well as I'm going to. So there's a lot of things that I want to explore that have been diverted by this political requirement. And I feel like I have to be able to fight off the degradations, whatever they are. I'm up to the fight to fight off the degradations. But I also
2: feel that I need to explore. (laughs) I need to explore within That's a flip side of the way the conversation gets distorted. It's not always easy to find the place where people just let you speak, let you do your thing.
0: Right. I have some work that I'm really very proud of, even though it's not necessarily the most finished. Like the Rivers First Draft, the piece in Central Park. That was just about me me dealing with myself, you know. That's the kind of work that if I don't get a chance to do it now... I really will have felt that they won somehow.
2: I did want to talk a little bit about um, sort of activism in the art world. I was reading Dada Meets Mama, this 1992 essay on the Women's Action Coalition, which was an artist-founded feminist organization begun in New York in reaction to the Clarence Thomas hearings. How has that kind of organizing behind the scenes been important to you? I had become a
0: single issue feminist for various reasons. I was very much into reproductive rights. And I would say that in the 70s and maybe even into the 80s, reproductive rights were not as much supported by black feminists as by white feminists for whom this was like a primary battle. And I always felt that if I wanted to get what I needed, I would have to make allies. I feel that in general. That we need allies. We're still a minority. We have to do it all ourselves. I did do various forms of feminism, not just WAC, but other organizations. And it always did seem to come to the point where it looked as if I and other women of color were charged with bearing difference. Whereas white women were free of difference, somehow. They were normative. That did put a limit on how much one could actually accomplish politically, I think. Were
2: those networks of people who formed to that important? Oh, yeah. I have to say that
0: I made tremendously wonderful friends. I still have many of them. And so... That's the complexity of it, you know? If you get into a world like that, friendship has an important role to play. And so there are battles you fight, battles you don't fight, you know?
2: I mean, you're someone who had, like, uh, a big comeback, in a way, in the last 15 years or so, you know? And part Come of that-
0: back? I haven't ever been there, you know? And I've, I've <laughs> come back?
2: <laughs> I would have to say this is my first
0: coming out, you know?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you were involved. There's a very important show called Whack, in, what, 2009? That was a gathering together of feminist art that Connie Butler partly created. And she had known you from the WAC coalition or something like that. Do I get that yeah. right? I've
0: had moments of success. I can't say that I haven't over the years. But I think this is the first time there's been uh, success with a greater degree of understanding. So it feels more real in some ways, more sustainable.
2: Okay, well, one of your most famous works is Art Is from 1983, which was this performance you did at the Harlem Day Parade. People might know that because it recently was, there was an homage to it by the Biden-Harris campaign when they won. Did you see it, by the way? Yeah, yeah,
0: I've seen it. It was kind of an amazing experience, you know. They were like... 40 million views on twitter the first day and and 40 million on other platforms or 80 million views the first day
2: yeah so art is is this very important performance you did where you took out a float in the parade and you had these um frames that people in the audience could people people watching in harlem could put around themselves there,
0: there were two parts to it there was a a float that had a, a very large frame, nine by 15 foot empty frame, and it was framing the cityscape, the landscape of these people's lives, you know, that there were the people holding up to individuals. The piece had two components, and I think that's what appealed to the Biden campaign, that they could show people in their landscape. They were originally going to do almost an imitation of what I had done in Harlem, but then... It, Came clear that they could do it something much larger if they showed the landscape as well as the people. Right, different kinds
2: of people. Yes,
0: exactly. Yeah. So I think that art is, its whole purpose was to show that there was a very large audience for art that was not being included, either as uh, audience or as makers. And that was, I think, an important point to make, but I think that the Biden video was able to make a larger point that's a
2: result of doing what they did, so I was thrilled with how it turned out. Did you get any feedback? Did people who'd never known your work before come to know you through it? I mean, 40 million people seeing it is a lot of people. Yes, it's a lot of people. It was very funny,
0: though. I said, this is amazing, you know, 80 million people in one day. Wow. And then the next day, there were maybe like 20 million. <laughs> <laughs> And then the day after that, it was just normal.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a quick spike. Uh, f- how fleeting is fame? And that, that yeah, it was a big learning curve there yeah. <laughs> in two days. Well, hopefully the the Brooklyn Museum will be a slower burn, but a more um, important uh, milestone. What do you hope people take away from the show? What do you hope they see? I want them to see the complexity of my work.
0: I want them to see the variety of the work. I'm not somebody who is boring down deep to find an ultimate truth. I'm just simply trying to make as many of my truths visible as possible since they've been made invisible. I hope that people like the show, I really do.
2: What do you think the biggest surprise that people will find is? I think that there's a lot of work uh, that they
0: haven't seen I think they really haven't seen the work, and they certainly haven't seen the work together. That's what's so amazing about this moment, is that it's the first retrospective of a long career, a career that hasn't had enough exposure for enough of the work. So I think that it's going to be the first time that people are able to see who I am as an artist, really amazing
2: I, I can't wait to see it myself
0: <laughs> i hope you like it there i really do
2: well lorraine i really appreciate your time really uh, great honor hope to see you when this is all over terrific thank you
1: that's it for this week's episode of the art angle if you like what you heard you can subscribe to the show on apple podcasts spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts also take a moment to rate and review us it will help other listeners discover what we're doing The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.